Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This week on the Garden DC podcast, I'm joined by Paul Westervelt. He is annual and perennial production manager and director of new plant R&D at Saunders Brothers in Virginia. Welcome, Paul. Hi, thanks for having me. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Jolly. It's been a good week. Good, good, good. So I know you just came back from doing some of that R&D work um, and talking all about plants and continuing to talk about plants with us. And we're going to have a particular focus on annuals. But your trip was on perennial research, right? It was perennials and woodies both. I got okay. to go to Michigan and visit uh, some breeders and marketers, including uh, Walter's Gardens and Spring Meadow, most notably. So the the people behind the Proven Winners perennials and the Proven Winners woodies. So talk a little bit about what you do for your new product research and what you look for. Uh, we collaborate uh, with four other nurseries, wholesale nurseries in the Mid-Atlantic and the Northeast so that we all trial the same product at the same relative time and track it on a shared platform so that we can get multiple years, essentially multiple years of trial data all at the same time. If I have a hot year and they have a wet year and somebody else has a, you know, Sheridan is in Toronto, so they're a good bit colder than we are in central Virginia. Uh, we, we just get that much more information, but it's mostly uh, perennials and woodies that we track that way. I'm in charge of annuals and perennials. So uh, off of that platform, I also um, visit trial gardens and uh, trial whatever annuals are sent to us by uh, vendors and breeders so that we can see what's going to work in our production and uh, what what will work in the area. That sounds like a dream job, Paul, for gardeners. <laughs> I can't imagine anything better than trying out new plants and, and seeing how they do for our region. I'd like to tell you that it's not, but it really is. Awesome. <laughs> You're like, oh, the drudgery of every day. So were you born with a green thumb or chlorophyll in your veins, as we like to ask on the Garden DC podcast? Uh, chlorophyll in the veins, maybe. Green thumb, absolutely not. And, and I kind of, right, almost nobody um, will say, n normal people would say that they have a green thumb. Almost, oh no, I kill plants. And as a professional grower, I kill plants. I, I once killed 10,000 Coreopsis early sunrise in one day. So for people who, I mean, killing plants is a part of, is a part of growing plants. Um, but chlorophyll in the veins, um, right. That was, uh, uh, I think, I think that was the title of, of Bobby's book about uh, JC Ralston. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd love to think that I have the plant passion of JC. Well, you're going to have to tell me more about this 10,000 Coreopsis kill. <laughs> so. that was, I don't work there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that was a previous job. Okay. It was it was uh, right out of grad school, and I thought I knew everything, and uh, I was pretty insufferable. And there was a contract uh, job. Um, it was shipping all the way to Chicago, and I was working in southwest Virginia at the time. And uh, as happens with contracts a good bit, the things weren't ready to install. 
So there was a delay and uh, the plants, I had grown them perfectly. No, it's not particularly hard. It's Coreopsis early sunrise, but I had grown them really, really nicely. And I was really proud of it. And I got grumpy about, uh, about them not shipping. And uh, so I kind of stopped paying attention to them because uh, I was um, not doing my job, frankly. And they uh, they got so big and needed spaced that then they needed cut back. And there was a little bit of bacteria inside the canopy on one spot. And you can pretty easily spread bacteria with head shears. So I spread bacteria across every cut stem on that crop. And uh, there was mass death after that. Wow, that must have been dramatic. It was. Most of the drama happened after I left because I did actually, uh, I left <laughs> I left in May of that year um, to go on a garden tour of England and Wales. And I proposed to my then girlfriend at the time, my now wife. And so I cut them all back and left town. I didn't know they were dead until I got back, which made the trip a lot nicer. I can imagine. And then when you came back, what was your greeting? Uh, I mean... It had had, it was a two week trip uh, and it was May. So they were exasperated with me for all sorts of reasons. But um, that was, uh, yeah, I, to their credit, right? It is what it is. You move on. And, uh, and that, yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't hell to pay. Did you have a degree in horticulture and that was your first job out of college? Tell me a little bit about your journey uh, to a horticultural career. It was kind of, uh, uncomfortably circuitous, but boils down to not recognizing that horticulture could be a career instead of just a hobby until I was on my third college. Uh, I tried a lot of things and kept working summer jobs in horticulture and still didn't make the connection. And I ended up working the night shift at a plant that manufactured roof trusses. And I was the only person there uh, during lunch where they were talking about, uh, you know, life. And it turned out I was the only person in the whole group that hadn't been to jail. <laughs> and I, it was at that moment that I realized school is not this bad. I need to reconsider. Uh, and there was a really terrific horticulture program at the local community college, Lord Fairfax in the Northern Shenandoah Valley, and a particularly outstanding teacher who's now uh, an extension coordinator based out of the Harrisonburg office, Cindy Marston. And uh, I found that ornamental horticulture just worked for me. So I graduated with honors from there, went on to Virginia Tech uh, while I was still on academic suspension for my first college attempt and uh, graduated with honors there. And I didn't, everybody did landscape contracting there. And so I didn't realize again, that there were options really beyond contracting. And so when I graduated, it was 2001 and the industry was just booming, particularly because we're so close to Northern Virginia. And faced with all those jobs, job opportunities, they were all essentially the same at five or six different, really terrific uh, gangbusters companies, but I still wasn't interested in that work. And so uh, I got accepted into the graduate program at, at Virginia Tech and found uh, production of floriculture crops and really just hit my stride. And it graduated in 2003, got a job at a grower down there and started at Saunders in December of 2004. And talk a little bit about Saunders. So they're famous for boxwood production. I am the color guy at the boxwood company. Ah, that is, okay. uh, <laughs> we, uh, uh, people know us for boxwood around here, actually, uh, locally. Um, 
people know us for tree fruit because we've been in orchard since 1915. That's when the company started. Uh, and one of the really wonderful things about working here is you can tootle across the parking lot when you need a snack and eat a tree ripened peach or Asian pear or apple or cherry or whatever the thing is, whatever the season is. That's, that's not the worst thing about working here, but they started in the, I think in the fifties, they started with boxwood. Uh, it was, uh, Paul Saunders passion. He looks at the world through boxwood colored glasses and, uh, he had seven kids, all boys. They all went to Virginia tech numbers two through five are still in the company. I think all of them, but one have been involved in one way or another as grownups. Of course, they were all in it as a kid. Uh, but we, we do annuals, perennials, trees, and shrubs, best known for boxwood. Um, our boxwood uh, have gone into major projects all around the greater D.C. area. If it's a big project and it's boxwood, there's a pretty good chance that we were involved. And I definitely want to have one of your boxwood experts experts come probably maybe in fall and talk on the garden dc podcast all about boxwood because we can get into you know some of the disease resistance that's happening and some of the best choices for the area as far as varieties and shapes and and types um so maybe we'll table that for later but i do want to let listeners know it is saunders plural so s-a- S-A-U-N-D-E-R-S, brothersplural.com, if you're interested in looking at the website. There's a free download for all the Boxwood fans in the world, and there are many, and they are mm-hmm. uh, they are serious. There is a uh, free downloadable uh, guide online that has a lot of useful information. I think we're on the sixth edition of it now. That's a terrific resource. So thanks for sharing that, Paul. So now we're going to turn to our A to Z of annuals, and we're talking from ageratum to zinnias, and maybe a bunch in between. And let's first talk about what is an annual, especially here in the Mid-Atlantic. How do we define an annual plant? I, I think I was thinking about that uh, as we were preparing for this, and I think there's a, a textbook definition that is good if you're on a quiz show, and then there's a functional definition, which is really not the same at all. And I think the quiz show definition uh, is any plant that completes its life cycle in a single year is considered an annual. So germinates, does its thing, uh, flowers, set seed, and dies all in a single season, which there aren't very many annuals that do that anymore. Because as gardeners, if you planted a petunia on Mother's Day weekend and right after it had a really spectacular flower show, it set seed and died, you would be pretty disappointed in the performance of that plant. And so breeders have, uh, have through various different ways, uh, tried to uh, eliminate that or extend the season functionally. So it's easier to think about a true annual in agronomic terms, corn or soybeans, something that comes up, does its thing and goes back to sleep. But functionally, it's anything that dies at the end of the year, because it doesn't matter if it could live another year, if we get to winter and it dies, we can, if you go to the annual section of a garden center, that's that's what you'll find are, are largely things that would keep going if they were in Florida, but we live in Virginia or some someplace colder where it's uh, where it'll freeze to death. And our region is predominantly zone seven, a little bit of six, a little bit of eight, but most of what is being sold at our local garden centers as an annual would be winter hardy up until that first hard frost. Maybe could be anywhere from end of October into December. 
I think the early end of the frost is worth pointing out too, since mm-hmm. last year we had that really, I don't know if you guys did in your area, but down oh, yeah. here we had a relatively brutal freeze Mother's Day last year. Mm-hmm. That was. Yeah. The Mother's Day weekend of 2020 is unforgettable. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's our annual garden club uh, fundraiser plant sale. And I was wearing a parka, earmuffs and gloves and, you know, throwing plastic and everything else I could find in the house over our annual plants just to save them from the bitter winds that day. But yeah, so that is to say that we could have a frost as late usually as Mother's Day in our region, and that's usually the all clear date after that. Um, So most annuals will need protecting up until that point, except if we categorize them right, Paul, as a cool season annual. So maybe we should talk about those first. Well, that's uh, that's an interesting distinction. And you're you're exactly right. There are annuals that um, can we think of annuals as as being killed by the cold at the end of the season. But there are some that are killed by the heat uh, instead. So you've got cool season annuals like uh, pansies and violas are are big in our region, snapdragons, uh, things like that, cabbage and kale. Uh, a lot of them will go right through the winter and then bolt in the spring, flower sometimes beautifully and uh, and then die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's our heat and humidity that just does them in. They they all kind of eke along still. Like I still have pansies out in containers right now, but should I be pulling them? Yes, but they still have flowers on them, so I'm keeping them in uh, during this transition time. It's not dead, but ugly enough that you kind of wish they would go ahead and die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of that point. And I've actually had a few violas and things that I've kind of kept, you know, well watered, deep in shade, and I can get them to bounce back in the fall. Um, because I'm a, I'm going to just call myself a frugal gardener. How's that? That's good. And they, right. They do well from seed. I think all pansies, I can't think of a pansy that's not grown from seed. There may be one with weirdo foliage on a collector site somewhere, but, uh, Mm -hmm. all our start from seed. Mm -hmm. And that does also bring us to a category that's called tender perennials or temperennials. And that could also be termed, hardy annual would be another term for those. And, uh, how often do you use that? I think I use tender perennial. If I talk about, a you know, in a plant profile, maybe I'll say that, you know, some snapdragons can go through almost the whole year, but that that's usually the extent of it. Our tender perennial program is things like uh, colocasia and alocasia and musa. And I don't know why we called it tender perennials exactly, or why we drew the line on those kind of tropicals, um, because there are lots of things that are perennial in other places of the of the country or the world, um, but we classify as a, a kind of arbitrarily, I guess, as an annual. Things like the annual vinca, catharanthus, and uh, wax begonias, right? They'll just do and do and do and do and do. You go to the Keys and you just find them all over the place in the dead of winter, just chugging right along. True. And there's those perennials that are short-lived as well. So they're kind of lumped in that whole thing. So mums, which could winter over for a few years, but they're they're not going to survive, you know, five, 10 uh, decades on in your garden like other perennials. Yeah, that list is kind of long, isn't it? <laughs> the list of things that we wish lived longer than they did. Definitely. And I was thinking in particular about the new echinacea introductions. So, you know, our straight species echinacea, that can keep chugging for, as I said, decades. 
but some of the newer echinacea seem to act more like almost an annual or a tender perennial that will have them for a couple years and then they peter out. Um, but there's ongoing breeding going on with those. Can you talk a little bit about the echinacea that are being introduced to the market now? I think they've gotten a lot better. I uh, I went through, I don't know if echinacea fatigue is a thing, but I went through it. Uh, if it if it if it does exist, uh, there were so many new echinacea colors that were coming out, and short, tall, double, semi-double, bright colors. That uh, and and the demand for them by uh, retailers was huge. If it had a bloom on it, you could sell it, and they wanted it badly, and they were happy to have it, and they sold it. And so I don't think we took the time then to realize quite how lousy a garden performer they were, right? We were, we were trusting the vendors and breeders that they were reliably perennial. And I think retailers were happy to have them and consumers were happy to have them. And so we were just uh, rushing them through the thing without actually really testing them very well. And some do really well in other places. I think the first orange orange and kind of yellows uh, hybrids that I saw were done by Jim Alt at Chicago Botanic Garden. And he had them in uh, at the, the Perennial Plant Association meeting in Chicago in 2002. And that was the, the very first ones. And they called them Arts Pride and uh, or Orange Meadow Bright and Mango Meadow Bright. Arch Pride and Orange Meadow Bright were the same thing. And I've seen them uh, really successfully perennial uh, in the West in places where uh, there was really terrific drainage. But here they just, right, they were beautiful and then they died. And there were lots of people that figured out, once they figured out they could breed that way, uh, they made a lot of the same crosses. But they weren't particularly uh, long-lived. There was a difference in the rooting. It was explained to me that Echinacea... Paradoxa, the yellow one, has a very different root structure than purpurea. One was tap-rooted and one was fibrous-rooted, and I don't remember which was which. But they essentially required uh, better establishment to uh, to make it through the uh, through the year than the traditional purpurea. How would a consumer know which ones were bred from the purpurea versus the other? I don't think they can. If it's white or pink, it's probably mostly purpurea. If it's got mm-hmm. any of the other colors, uh, you wouldn't. It, it has to have paradoxa in it to have the other colors in it. Cause I think the only, the only echinacea that's not, I think that's right. The only echinacea that I'm aware of that's not white or pink of a dozen or so species is paradoxa, which is yellow, but they have gotten better over time. And we're uh, right, 2002 was almost 20 years ago, right? There's that many generations of breeding that we've gone through and they've added things like Tennesseeensis in there to make them a little, a little tougher. And so you get series now like the Sombrero series or the Kismets. Uh, those are from two different breeders. Those have been reliably perennial in our garden. Uh, one of the best perennial early, really strikingly colored echinacea was called Oh no, I forgot the name. Hot papaya. And that's from a Dutch breeder. And uh, some of their other things didn't do as well as uh, didn't, weren't as reliably perennial in the garden uh, at that same time as hot papaya. But it's a, it looks like a a badminton birdie almost and fully double. And it's kind of fiery orange red. And it is persistent in the ground, even in the sweltering DC summers. So they're better than they used to be. That That's the point. If, if you got tired of them because they died, you can uh, relatively safely go back and uh, and try again. 
good message. And also, you know, talk to other local gardeners. What are your experience? Go to public gardens and look at them. If they're treating their echinaceas annuals, that's probably a clue, right? (laughs) If, If the display doesn't continue from year to year. But that's what's also great about visiting trial gardens is you get to see them from season to season. I'm so glad you said that. And you guys have a rich, uh, a, a richness of public horticulture uh, in and around uh, D.C., All you know, from Richmond to Philly. There's just one after the other after the other. So public horticulture is a great place to see what's working. And to get inspiration and ideas. So there's like so many combinations that you can see that you might not have thought of. And they're also doing the same thing you are, uh, kind of research and development to see what works and what doesn't work. But that kind of gets hidden, some of that what doesn't work. <laughs> you have to really talk to the staff and find out or, or be visiting the garden on a regular basis. You know, going just once a year isn't going to tell you that whole story. That's a whole lot hard, harder, I think, to be a gardener at a, at a public garden than it mm-hmm. is to be a professional grower because I can only show you my successes. Right. If I if if we have lousy plants here all the time, but we don't ship those out. (laughs) Whereas when you're on the stage for everyone to see all the time, uh, right, your failures can be kind of public. Yeah, that's kind of I guess the good and bad is everything is out there, but there are lessons to be shared and things that can be taught, which are are great to be seeing. And I like to see the failures, too, because, I, you know, you want to learn from that. The, you know, a failure isn't an end. It's just a learning experience. That's my favorite thing about our trials. We, uh, instead of having our trials right in front of the office where every customer would see them when they walk through, we have them uh, in a gated separate area uh, so that it's restricted access. And that means that uh, not only can I let something, right, we have got some Phlox paniculata back there right now that have powdery mildew right up to their throats. And I can let it do that because nobody's going to see that but the, the people who are supposed to be in the trials. Hmm. And speaking of Phlox and powdery mildew, um, what are you looking for in your trial plants? Are you looking for as we talked about with the echinacea looking great in a pot full of bloom for the retailer, or are you looking more for the end gardener and what's going to happen in their garden? Both things. I'm happy to say both things we're looking for. Uh, I think that for a long time, we'd started doing all of our trials to the degree that we do because we recognized that we unbeknownst to us, we were selling plants that uh, we were talking about the echinacea a minute ago. We were selling plants that were going to die. Uh, and, and I think if you, if you have the expectation going in, like you plant a marigold, you know, it's going to die at the end of the year. So you're not disappointed when that happens. If you paid any attention to the tag and where you got it in the store and stuff like that. But if you buy a perennial, you do expect it to come back year after year. So, and tag information is almost useless. So we were trialing things in pots because we sell them in pots. And if it doesn't look good in a container, it doesn't matter how well it does in the ground because you're never going to buy it at at retail. But the reverse is not also true. There were plants that were failing in the ground that looked great in the pot. So now we do pot trials and ground trials uh, and, and both have to work. There are a lot of paniculatas that get powdery mildew like crazy in the ground. I have not found a true paniculata. Uh, there's some hybrids happening now from several different breeders. But the only true paniculata that I have found that does not get powdery mildew, not once in five years, is a plant called Gina, uh, mm-hmm. J-E-A-N-A. And it's five feet tall, so it, it doesn't it doesn't fit the miniaturization trend that seems to be 
uh, racking the herbaceous side of the industry right now. But it also, in the Mount Cuba trials, it was preferred by pollinators 10 to 1 over the next closest variety. Yeah, and I don't see Gina at any local garden centers probably because it is so popular. Ah, good. You're not seeing it because it's sold out. That's way better than not having it. We're, we're, we're selling about a truckload. Yeah, because I'm like, every time I ask, they're like, not in stock, not in stock. But yeah, we, we've done a good uh, service through, through Mount Cuba and your trials through boosting that one cultivar. So I think we'll see it in more in production and more at local garden centers, hopefully in, in future years. Every time I see a breeder, I ask that they use it in, uh, in their breeding because uh, other than small florets, everything else about it is a, uh, is a winner. So speaking of winners, let's talk about some of our annual favorites. And I wanted to start off with the A to Z with Angelonia. And that's an annual that's not your grandmother's annual, right? It's one that's been pretty new on the market. I don't know how far back they go, but um, they were they were doing in in some degree when I came on to the uh, to the annual scene and started paying attention. Um, I thought you were going to start with uh, with Ageratum, which was the very because it was a fuzzy purple. It was my favorite when I was a kid. I just mm-hmm. loved that it looked like a a kind of a, a purple stuffed animal. Um, and they, they make them better than they used to. But Angelonia, you can get um, tall ones and short ones. You can get weeping ones. Um, I particularly like the Angel Face series uh, from Proven Winners, but also um, Angel Face from Ball and Serena, which I don't remember where Serena comes from. There's a lot of annual breeders. But depending on what you're looking for, uh, you can get lots of different looks. Pink, uh, rich pink, baby pink, white, light blue, bicolor, dark blue. And I, you may know better than I do, but they are alleged to be deer resistant. Yeah, it's one of the annuals that for some reason, maybe they're just not familiar with, but also might have a scent that we don't really detect because I don't think of it as a scented plant, but that can sometimes deter deer as well is the scent of them. But I think why there are such winners in the garden, especially in containers, as you talked about before, is that they... Uh, are pretty heat resistant. They look like they're delicate, like they have little delicate flowers and they're, they're called the summer snap, snapdragon, if you know that by, under them by that common name. But they do really well um, in heat and humidity, almost, you know, astonishingly well. I also see them sometimes impart shade, which I feel better about with the little ones because there's not as much to fall apart on the Serenas and Serenitas as there are on some of the big ones. But uh, I also have, have seen them do passably in some shade. Yeah, I think they'll still flower for you in part shade, which is which is a good thing. But if you're looking for a bedding plant or a, a, you know, a sun annual that's going to take a, a beating, so to speak, not from sitting on it, <laughs> but from straight beating down sun and maybe you miss a watering or two, that's a, that's a good choice. It is not a plant that they will find early in the garden center though. One mm-hmm. of the interesting things, right? We start shipping pretty hard in March because that's when uh, garden centers really start their ramp up of, uh, of kind of spring annual product with the, with the great big caveat that right when you buy a tomato in March, you have to protect it because it could still freeze all the way up until mother's day. But uh, there are some that some of the plants that do particularly well in the summer are difficult to grow in uh, short days and cooler temperatures. And so you won't find them in the garden center until later. Lantana is another, right? You really, you got to have heat to get uh, Vinca and Lantana and Angelonia to finish. 
That's a great point. So you can't do all your annual shopping, say, uh, mid-April. You, you might want to come back late May and do like a second round. You should just go every weekend so that you can find <laughs> the thing that you really have. So, because it might not be there that long, right? Yeah, the the speeding frenzy that we've seen the last two years, my golly, if you don't get it, if you're not there when it comes off the truck, you might not see it again. Mm -hmm. And at this point in your cycle, which is mid to late June, are you still producing and shipping out annuals to garden centers or are you switched to the fall cycle or another time? We're producing them. Um, I'm I'm disappointed to say that uh, they're not shipping especially well, but we're producing them. We've stopped a four and a half inch uh, because you just can't hold a plant very long in a four and a half inch pot. Uh, and we've finished our 10 inch program, but we still have a lot of six inch, which is kind of bridges the tries to bridge the gap between retail varieties and landscape varieties. But we'll still have landscapers who are coming in looking for a thousand or 1500 of a mix because they've got some job that just finished that needs to be landscaped. So we have, we tried really hard this year, having been sold out at this time for several years in a row, we tried to have better depth and variety of, uh, summer friendly annuals uh so that when somebody wanted them they could come by and get them and uh we succeeded in the first part of that but we're the the second part is yet to be seen hmm, interesting yeah because there was such a surge of plant buying um post covid and during covid of course with people going to garden centers but there's always that time of year for me around now where I'm looking at my containers, I'm looking at the holes in things, looking where I need some more color to fill in. So I think that's great that there's still production because there had been some years in the past where you would go to a garden center in, you know, even mid to early June, even the early part of June, and it would be wiped out. I'm glad I'm glad to hear that, frankly, because I think uh, the industry has uh, has had a couple of rough years um, and there aren't as many growers and there aren't as many retailers as there used to be uh, since the, the downturn in 2009. Um, so I'm glad to hear that people sold out, but I'm also right. You want to be sold out, but you want to be sold out at the last moment that anyone wanted that plant. Nobody wants to be sold out prematurely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All those missed sales. So going back to our A to Z, and we won't have something for every letter of the alphabet, of course, Paul, because that would be crazy. <laughs> but the B's and C's seem to have the most amount of annuals in them, the B's and C names. So I was looking at, in particular, Bacopa, which I think is a underused annual, like filler. And it's kind of one of those pretty little flowers that just sits there, and but it performs all season long. Do you have any insights about Bacopa? It just makes a great, it's a, it's a really wonderful spiller, right? If you're doing the thriller filler spiller of your combo, uh, Bacopa makes a great spiller because it just weeps down over the edge. One of the tricks with Bacopa, you need to not let it dry out hard. Oh. If you let it dry out hard once, your foliage will stay there, but you'll sacrifice flowers for about two weeks and still it, until it starts coming on again. That's good to know. And yeah, it's one of those supporting players. Like you wouldn't use it as the feature plant of a container, but definitely as a, a nice supporter and, and something to play off of. Blues, whites, pinks. And there's a closely related genera called, I think, James Brittiana mm. that has uh, some more um, warmer colors, yellows and peaches and, and things. And I think you'll see some of those come out in national programs next year. Oh, something to look forward to. So what was that Latin name again? James Brittiana. Huh, unusual. So we'll definitely look out for that. And then we come to the big B, begonia, 
there are so many bedding plant begonias out there and so many new introductions. Um, how do you even keep track of all of them? Uh, I went to, um, well, I don't have to keep track because uh, 80% of them are essentially identical to the rest. Um, so if you want a bronze leaf red or you want a green leaf white, you know, a bronze leaf red, pink and white, green leaf red, pink and white beyond that, from a performance standpoint, they're essentially the same thing. I went to the Raker Roberta trials in Michigan a couple of years ago, and they have a five acre trial garden. So it takes me at least a half a day to meticulously walk through there and they're online. You can see all of their trial results. It's not necessarily um, exactly applicable to our area because it's Michigan, which is a, a lot cooler in the summer, but the annual data is, uh, is better, I think for our region than the perennial data. But I went there and, and they had, they, they had 180 different uh, begonias if they had, if they had two. And I really, you get some that have a slightly bigger flower and some that have a slightly bigger habit. But when it comes to wax begonias, like uh, preludes or super cools or nightlifes or cocktails, cocktails have been around for a long time. Um, it can be a little frustrating actually to have, right. You're in the, you're, you're in the third month of spring and you're exhausted and all you want to do is spend time in your own garden and you're busy spacing begonia, uh, gin <laughs> over and over and over again. And I think I'd really like a gin and tonic right now. And instead I've got the gin and begonia, but, uh, yeah, they're all, they're all essentially the, the same thing. Um, there are others though, the, uh, the big begonias from Benari. And there's also Viking from a different breeder and there's, uh, oh, they come in, a, in, in several different names. It's a little bit like dragon wing, which has been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but dragon wing really has flowers, uh, hanging off its, its sides it, and it tends to be a little bald on top. Uh, so it makes a great hanging basket. Um, it makes an enormous hanging basket, uh, but the uh, the big series and the whoppers, both from the same breeder, they have flowers up on top too. So you get um, you get a wax begonia look on a plant that's uh, several times bigger. Now, most begonias are used as bedding plants, um, and of course, also in hanging baskets. But um, do you recommend any other uses for begonias? Uh, I've seen there's some that make really terrific indoor plants. The rhizomatous begonias um, and the and the rex types um, can be beautiful indoor outdoor plants. If you go to a place, um, the one that comes to mind is Chanticleer. Uh, if you've not been to Chanticleer, uh, as soon as the podcast ends, get in your car and go straight there because it is uh, it's heaven in a garden. It's right outside of Philly in the main line in Wayne, Pennsylvania, and they incorporate. Uh, all things. There are no rules. The rules of container gardening at Chanticleer are a little bit like Butch Cassidy's uh, rules for a knife fight and and Butch and, and uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And uh, right after he <laughs> he kicks Harvey in the nether regions, he said, "There's no rules in a knife fight," and <laughs> and off they go. And I think Chanticleer looks at it the same way. They uh, are really experimental in what goes into their containers, but they have. Uh, taken those wonderful foliage rhizomatous types and uh, and mixed them up too. So and then you can take them inside outside. I grew up with um, uh, uh, some sort of um, interesting foliaged begonia uh, as a house plant. Okay, for those Garden DC listeners who missed the episode, we did talk to Chanticleer about their container gardening. So I highly recommend that episode and we'll put a link to that in our show notes so you can check out that one as well because i agree with paul they're on another level with their container gardening 
So the next B annuals that I was looking at were Biden's and Brawilia. And, oh, good. And both of those, I feel like, are not as well known, like by the average homeowner consumer who's looking for annuals in the store. Biden started out just yellow a couple of years ago. It's a little yellow daisy looking thing that grows pretty low to the ground, but uh, several breeders all at the same time. And that seems to be how it happens. Um, came out with bicolors. And now there's these really rich uh, red and orange and yellow flowers, still the daisy form um, that do uh, just wonderfully through the, through the summer. I've seen them used in the ground. I've seen them, uh, see them used in containers also. Um, so do keep an eye out for Biden's Browalia. I like because it blooms beautifully in the shade and shade flowering annuals. There's just not a lot of selection, not as much as I wish there was. We have, uh, there's uh, blue and white are the two primary colors. And, uh, I, I always make sure to bring home a, a blue flowered Browalia for our own containers on our back porch. I agree, Paul, that, that that's one of the parts of the annual market that I wish breeders would concentrate more on is the shade, especially shade containers. You know, you can get some shade fillers in the ground like Caladium and maybe Impatiens or, you know, even Terenia is a great container choice. Sure. But there's not that much out there. Begonias can go from, you know, sun to shade and you might have a little bit of slowing down of the flowers, but you can have them in, in both situations. And of course, all the beautiful coleus out there. So there's a lot of um, foliage choices, but not so much where it just keeps on flowering and keeps on flowering. But one of my favorite shade annuals is the fuchsia, the annual fuchsias. I don't grow them well. I agree hmm. that they look spectacular. I just... Um... They are inconsistent in our production, so it's an mm -hmm. annual that I love to hate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not the they're more finicky than some of the others, and they're certainly not like the old impatience where they just go go go. But yeah, the annual fuchsias they they shed a bit. They're kind of on and off, but as long as you keep them well watered and you know out of direct direct like hot afternoon sun, then they usually do pretty well. And they look so tropical, right? There's mm -hmm. nothing that looks like a fuchsia. Yeah, they look like tiny little fairies to me. That's a great explanation. Yeah, the little like ballerina skirt on there is just adorable. But there are some, we were talking earlier about tender perennials. There are a couple tender perennial fuchsias. Fuchsia Gartenmeister is one that if we have a mild winter, you can get that to, to winter over here in the mid-Atlantic for us. Um, and I think that's where some of the breeding in fuchsia is going is to some of those more um, perennial side of things to get them to be hardier in the garden. I saw a perennial fuchsia when I was at Walters this week, and they said it was hardy to zone five. Okay. You have to send me that information. They, uh, it, they talked about it, but I didn't, uh, right? The little the, the flower was maybe an inch tall, and it was a, kind of a normal color range. But um, okay. yeah, zone five. Yeah, that sounds very promising, especially if they can, in future years, make that flower bigger, make that flower in different colors. So that'll be fun to look out for that. So that brings us to the C's, and I think we're going to speed through the rest of the alphabet after that. But as I said, the C category is one of the biggest categories. It seems to be like every Latin name starts with a C, every plant Latin name. So we've got, of course, Calibracoa. We can't skip over those. So let's talk about some of those really fun 
uh, colors that are coming in Calibracoa. There's a chameleon series from Westoff that does different colors depending on how much sun it gets. And of course, mm. part of that is determined by how full the container is. So even right there in the same plant, you can get multiple uh, multiple colors, uh, hu- uh, kind of ranges of the same color, right? You know, it's not the difference between yellow and, and purple, uh, but blue and white and purple, kind of a yesterday, today, tomorrow kind of look. Uh, so they're one of my favorites, but the ones we really depend on because of their uh, extended per extended season performance are the Super Bells from uh, Proven Winners. They have over and over again they they perform very well. There's lots of Calibracoa options, but uh, I do like how they how they finish for us and how they hold up in containers. And that is one of the annuals, Paul, that I amazingly had winter over last year. I could not believe it. I was a lazy gardener at the end of the season, did not yank them out of the containers, just threw the containers all in a corner. And I saw a little bit of the foliage start peeking back out around April and they leafed back out and are flowering now. Wow. Same color. So it is not from same seed? color, same Wonderful. color. And I was like, same little plant because they were just bare stems through the winter. Right. And then I started to see a little green on the stems and I was like, is this the same plant? And I checked the tags, checked everything. And yes, they, they actually wintered over. So I think obviously chalked that up to a fairly mild winter and a little bit of a protected spot, you know, up against a fence grouped with a bunch of other containers, but that happened in zone seven. Uh, they are ones that can take it that uh, we talked about an annual earlier that you don't find until later. Angelonia, we don't find mm-hmm. it until later in the season. Calibracoa is one that you can um, find really early in the season. And if you find them in the fall, um, right, if everybody's containers look tired by the end of, end of the summer, right, you went mm-hmm. away and they you went away for vacation and your neighbor didn't water as much as they were supposed to or whatever, or they just overgrew or you're bored. I've, I've got ADD and so I like things to change several times a year. Calibracoa will go a long way into uh, into fall, right? They can take some light frost without any problem. So right after we get them rooted in the spring from a early March planting, we will move them into an unheated but covered greenhouse. So they can go into the high 20s with uh, no damage at all. Yeah, so they're almost like you could consider them also a cool season annual as well. Uh, not as much as a pansy, but cool season enough that uh, it would get you uh, it would get you into October. And for those years uh, that we have, I feel like a couple of years in a row, we had a, a decent frost. We had a killing frost in the middle of October, but we didn't have another one <laughs> for almost a month. And so your Calibracoa would sail right through to Thanksgiving in those years. And can we talk a little bit about the difference between Calibracoa and Petunia? So sometimes Calibracoa are, are referred to as a miniature Petunia. The line kind of bleeds, and there's breeding that crossed the two. They are different but closely related genera. Calibracoa generally has a, a flower size of, about the size of a quarter, and a petunia uh, many times bigger than that. But then there's Pachoa, which uh, which crosses the two in, in lots of ways. One of the differences is Calibracoa generally doesn't perform as well in the ground. Uh, one of the one of the useful distinctions. Calibraco is more of a container plant, and uh, petunia is more of a uh, does fine in a container, but also does well in a ground. And pachoa, the super cows, are ones that um, that can also do uh, go either way. That is just not a petun- petunia that's bred down to a miniature size. 
Fiat ca- uh, no, no, it is not. Which that's what it sounds like when people are saying, you know, it's a miniature version of Petunia is basically what I've heard people say. They're more susceptible in a lot of ways. They are right. They both want low pH. Uh, they mm-hmm. both want high fertility, but Calibrico are, are more susceptible to root rot than Petunias are. And that's, that's why they do better in containers than they do in the ground. It's hard mm. to grow in the clay. Yeah. And, and you can obviously control containers for a great drainage a little bit better there. So let's go to Dichondra. And I'm a huge fan of Silver Falls. So that's a non-flowering pretty much. If there is a flower, I haven't noticed it on my Dichondra. But that's one of those spillers that I would not go without in my containers. They can spill a long way too. They can mm-hmm. spill six feet or more. I've seen giant containers um, at some of the trade shows where they just go and go and go. I was going to say, I've seen window boxes on the second floor that go all the way down. Hey, nice. Like the beads from uh, from the 70s. Uh, I, I like it for um, weaving in and out of everything. It can go pretty dry. Uh, I see it used with uh, some of the things like... Um, agaves and aloes and mangaves and other fun succulenty things because it doesn't climb. It just kind of runs across everything. So it can be a carpet or it can be a, a sheet, but it will not reach out. It only goes straight down. So if you need something to uh, to go out and then down to complete your look, uh, this wouldn't be a good choice. But other than that, boy, it's a it's a it's a neat plant. Yeah, that's a good point, Paul, that you want to put it at the front edge of your container to spill over, because if you put it, say, toward the two-thirds back or the middle, it will have a hard time reaching over. That's exactly how I use it. Or mm-hmm. I'll put it, uh, maybe it'll be second tier right behind another four and a half inch, like Scavola or Verbena. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's already long enough that I can kind of weave those those runny arms through things so that you get a more... Um, kind of a richer look instead of a, a a one combo or a one or two. You get that one more component in there. Yeah, I like the way you describe the interweaving because that's exactly how you can use the, the dichondra. So it can just be kind of setting off with that silvery foliage, everything else that's in the container. So let's talk about heliotrope, which I'm saying with a heavy sigh, Paul, <laughs> because I have killed this plant uh, so many times, but I still go back and buy it again because Me of too. that incredible smell. It's just beautifully scented. This, I think this heliotrope is one of those things. And I think you, you set it up really well there. Um, it is so, it is so deliciously fragrant. It, it is absolutely a grandma kind of plant. Um, not that you're a grandma, but, uh, that right. I associate, it's heliotrope has been around for a really long time, and uh, lots of people, just like you, keep going back to uh, to for that fragrance. Um, and I think that this is a plant that I think of a little bit like a poinsettia, and that it's okay if it doesn't live a long time. It's okay that you buy it and you enjoy it, and then it goes away or you send it away. Uh, they tend to be kind of floppy. Uh, but the fragrance, there's just, there's nothing like it. Yeah. I like that you give permission, Paul, (laughs) to enjoy it just for a short term. Just think of it as an ephemeral annual. We'll make a new category for that. How's that? I I think that, uh, it sounds a little, right. It sounds a little bit like I'm, uh, I'm a grower trying to get you to buy more plants. And and I guess in some ways that I I am, but that's not how I, that's not how I intended it. Mm -hmm. I meant that, um, we regularly have cut flowers in the house, whether they came from uh, a professional grower just out of our yard. And, you know, we enjoy them for a week, sometimes more. 
uh, and then we replace them with something else. And uh, if you're buying cut flowers at the store, you're buying a heliotrope, it's, you know, it's essentially the same thing. I agree. And if you just look at the rest of your garden, your perennials, your shrubs, and some of them might be in bloom for a week or two, you can think of some of your annuals that same way. And we should probably pause here to talk a little bit about that summer kind of, mm, I don't want to call it a petering out, but, you know, a flagging of your annuals. They they kind of stop flowering as much and the heat kind of gets to them a little bit. So what's your um, advice for the home gardener when that starts to happen in midsummer? Uh I don't always know because sometimes I'm perplexed by the varieties that do it. But I think um, a little bit of fertilizer, right? And making sure you're you're not, uh, you didn't have a, we can forget after a wet season when it dries down pretty hard. We can stop recognizing, particularly if it's planted in the ground. Uh, so make sure that you didn't uh, let things dry down pretty hard and, and uh, keep a little bit of moisture on there. Also, I choose some varieties for our own beds that continue to bloom right through that. So it's okay if some stuff takes a break. Uh, we put um, the tropical milkweed, Asclepius curasavica in there, and it just keeps chugging right along through the, uh, through the whole summer. You can also mix with uh, uh, perennials that are uh, particularly showy in that window. We use uh, Crocosmia just for that. And another one I would say was Lantana. That's one Ooh, that yeah. doesn't ever stop for me. And that's such a pollinator magnet. So, and those new colors, those really bright, bright colors in Lantana are just stunning. How do you, uh, uh, how do you approach the, the midsummer pause? I usually do it like a bit of a sheer back, you know, I'll come with, um, you know, some light pruning on some of the containers and then give them a fertilizer after a week or so. Um, you know, let them rest for a little bit, you know, because so, some of them, especially any ones that are hanging over containers, say, they'll they'll start to get a little bit leggy. And sometimes petunias will just send out like an arm here and an arm there, but not much as far as blooms on them. So those I don't feel bad about cutting back for a little bit. And then they'll bounce right back usually. That's a good approach. I saw uh, dahlias. Um... I was at a, a a plant geek garden center right outside of Columbus, Ohio, before the Cultivate show, and they had just benches and benches and benches of beautiful dahlia foliage covered up in bud, and uh, I kind of you know lamented with the guy, you know, ah, geez, almost made it for the trade show because I knew he was he was forcing for the for the big Cultivate show right there, and uh, he said, no, they've been budded like this for weeks. It's just been hot, so they stalled, and uh, there's a there's a heat delay on some things. And as soon as the weather turns cool again, they'll be spectacular. The timing was just unfortunate for finishing them for a trade show. Yeah. And that can happen with shows, especially you're, you're like, you should have seen my garden last week, right? (laughs) That syndrome of what was just at peak. And then the visitors came two days later. Yeah. That's supposed to be right. One of the things Christopher Lloyd hated the most. When is your garden the best? You're implying that it's not very nice right now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. The gardener can say that the visitor should not. Exactly. So we were just talking about Lantana and I wanted to also bring up Verbena, which I think a lot of people get those two mixed up because they do have a similar kind of low growing habit. If you use them as a bedding plant in the ground and they kind of have that ball of blooms at the, at the end. 
Wow, I never thought I can see how that happens. I wouldn't have thought that, but I see how you how you make it. Uh, verbena come in um, some similar colors, but mostly I think of as uh, as different, right? Whites, pinks, purples, uh, edging into some of the blues or what passes for blue in in our industry at least. Um, you get some some peaches. Uh, I can't think of a yellow. Uh, verbena that I've seen. And Lantana is just the tropics all day long, right? It's There's one that's purple, um, but the rest are uh, white or uh, a little lemony side of that. Most yellow, orange, red, pink. And then you get multiple colors on the same flower so that it just looks like it. Ought, you ought to hear marimba music in the background when I look at Lantana. Yeah, it definitely says tropical sunset hues when you're looking at them. And so you want them to be up front and center. Like there, there's no hiding those, <laughs> Lantana at least. Verbena could be more of a mixer, a, a spiller or a filler in a container, definitely. I think that Verbena is one that deer eat. Is that right? I think of it as, as deer food. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lantana is not. The, Lantana has very fragrant foliage, which offends some people. And if it offends you, then don't brush against it. You won't smell it. But um, I think it smells a little citrusy, but I might be uh, generous. I think a lot of people think it smells a little uranine. <laughs> but that's one of the things that, that uh, deters the deer brows. Yeah, I haven't found it too offensive in in the smell department. You're not usually, you know, leaning in and and laying on it per se. So versus, say, marigolds, where if you're planting them amongst your vegetable plot, then you're more face to face with the marigolds and some of that foliage can be a little pungent. I do. I love that about right. As soon as I forget what a tomato smells like. And as soon as I'm gardening again, I think, yep, there it is. And uh, Monarda, to me, smells like um, either oregano or Lucky Charms. Not Lucky Charms, Fruit Loops, depending on if I'm if I'm weeding vigorously in the spring and the weeds got a little out of control and I suddenly smell Fruit Loops, I realize I've gotten too far into the Monarda. <laughs> so the Achilles heel of Lantana would have been um, that they sometimes cycle. When they set seed, uh, they would stop blooming until uh, they kind of get over that cycle and then they'd push through again. And breeders have largely done away with that. So they're, they're more ever blooming than they used to be. And they're not quite, you know, you go to some places and they, you go to the, the beach, particularly in the South, and you can find them uh, used almost as, as hedges. They're so tall, but uh, they've got them in, in all sizes. You can get uh, almost softball sized uh, lantana now all the way up to, uh, to hedge types. And verbena, the thing that I'm looking for is its performance throughout the season, because that's one I think that can benefit from a shear partway through. And some of them really suffer with powdery mildew late in the season. So you would, uh, right, if you if you go to a trial site and you're there in late August and it still has clean foliage, that's a winner. That's a great tip because that's one of the things I was going to say about our next annual zinnias is powdery mildew can be an issue late in the season. Um, do you find some of the new cultivars have that issue a little bit less? The only zinnias that we grow are the uh, are the the interspecific hybrids that make great bedding plants, the Profusion and the Zahara series, and we don't see any mildew on those at all. So the the taller types we seed them out in the vegetable garden some, but we just use them as cuts. And so if the foliage looks bad, meh. The, our whole vegetable garden is weedy anyway. I'm not I'm not worried about the foliage there. What do you see? 
Yeah, I would say the seed-grown old-fashioned zinnias that are for cut flower gardens, I agree with you. Those are the ones that are more susceptible to the powdery mildew. And again, you're cutting them and bringing them in. You're not using them as a container or a bedding plant per se. So you can tolerate a little bit of that, of that powdery mildew. But the new zinnias, the Zahara series that you talked about, those are incredible plants for the garden here in the Mid-Atlantic. And I love that one of them is Marilandica Zahara Sunburst. So mm -hmm. there we have our own namesake right there. I think Marilandica is called Marilandica, if I remember right, because it was that cross was first made at the University of Maryland. Yay! So there we go. One that probably does very well in our Mid-Atlantic region. So a plant that we didn't talk about that I love for our area um, for for annual is um, it's called porterweed or stacky tarfeta. Uh, we went to Costa Rica and we saw them used like butterfly bushes down there, except in hedges, because they just bloom and bloom and bloom and bloom. They send out these long whips of flower buds, sometimes two and three feet long. And you, the flowers are only open for a day, but they march up the stem. And if you get the mutabilis, uh, the, the species mutabilis or its selections. They're peach and purple and there's a hot pink one. They bloom th right through the hottest part of the summer and the hummingbirds and the butterflies love them. We put, we saw them in Costa Rica uh, in places that were trying to attract uh, hummingbirds uh, around resorts and things. And we put them out right off the end of our own uh, our own deck every year, just so uh, our kids are convinced that hummingbirds are garden fairies. And so we want to do everything we can to get them by because it's thrilling. Even they're seven and four. And uh, we love to watch the hummers and they come to the porterweed every year over and over and over again. Excellent. That's one I've not tried in my own garden, but I've certainly seen it at butterfly gardens, at local public gardens. And yeah, it's unusual because it has kind of that straight, tall, almost grass-like stem um, you can picture it almost like gladiolas where they just open up in sequence up and down the stem, but at different levels on, on different flowers. So it's not like all are low at the same time. There's some high ones, there's some low ones. So it's a pretty cool effect. It seems to mix pretty well with others too. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't I wouldn't want a bed of just that because the flower to foliage ratio is is really skewed towards the foliage. But the right the it's what they attract is is why we plant them. But you mix that purple in with some uh, some purple leafed elephant ears and some of the salvia garanitica types that are out there that are right on the edge of hardy for us, um, like Amistad or the rock and blue suede shoes. Mm -hmm. It makes quite a combination together. And so for listeners, that, that was a little bit of a tough Latin name, so I'm going to try to spell it. Um, so it's porterweed is the common name, and stachy is S-T-A-C-H-Y, and then tarfeta, T-A-R-P-H-E-T-A. -E so stachy tarfeta, am I saying it correctly, Paul? That's the way I say it. I have no, right? You get your syllables in the right order and fire away. I don't know what the right way is. So stachy tarfeta mutabilis, and, or you can look up porterweed really dynamite and take all these things and, and mix them together and the one last annual that i was going to bring up that i think is unusual and not so much used in our area that i saw on the saunders brothers site is the tolenum and you're calling it a uh, flame flower and sometimes i think that's called jewels of opar that is a much better name i don't know why mm -hmm. we call it flame flower yeah because i've seen it you have in a chartreuse version of the leaves. So it's like a bright green leaves. And I've 
you know, commonly see it where it's sold for seed or, you know, pass a pass along plant where somebody gives you seeds from it, that it's a more plain green. And then sometimes it can turn to that chartreuse color. But yeah, it's like little dancing wands of beads out in the garden. So that's why it gets that Jewels of Opar name. The cultivar that we use is, I think, uh, Limon, L-I-M-O-N. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does, that uh, yellow foliage does come true from seed quite prolifically. Um, so if you, uh, right, it's, it's a pass along plant is generally one that does pretty well. And this one mm-hmm. does do that. And it's one we talked about having difficulty finding some shade ones. I have this from deep shade to full sun. It's one of those crazy plants that once it's happy in a spot, it, it just goes and goes. Well, the other, uh, the other one, if I could uh, to pick one oddball, would be the mangave. I mentioned it earlier, but it's a it's a cross. Um, Hans Hansen is a breeder, uh, and he's a kind of a wizard. Um, he seems to be able to snap his fingers and create whatever he wants. I don't know how he does it, but he's also a really outstanding gardener and garden designer. And so the things that he puts together are frequently, uh, picked up, uh, by us at least and, and by others because, um, they just fit so well. And he did this, uh, amazing cross between, um, aloe and agave or excuse me, not aloe, uh, Manfreda, our, our, um, deciduous, uh, native version and um, agave and he's crossed them with all sorts of agaves and so you get lots of different looks there and uh, some of them are super spiky but a lot of them aren't i think some people are are attracted to the spikes on agave and others are kind of uh, put off by them but they come in all sorts of colors and they grow like weeds through the heat of the season people think succulents uh, want to be dry and hungry and they can be dry and hungry they can tolerate that very very well but uh, my experience is they're much happier if they're relatively moist and enriched soil. They just grow gangbusters. It makes a good indoor plant. We we have them out in uh, galvanized um, old um, apple picking buckets, maybe 12 inches wide. And we've got different selections planted out in those that fill out the pot really well. We bring those in and treat them as indoor plants. We have a lot of windows in the back of the house, so we have a lot of light in there. And we bring them in through the through the winter and then take them back out the next year. But you don't really have to because they've they've come down to a kind of an annual price uh, through the magic of tissue culture. And it's just it's a neat thing to explore. So if you're looking to mix your uh, your dichondra or your dorothianus and some of the annual euphorbias with other things, you can put together a really drought tolerant uh, container and a, and a hard to reach spot of the garden that just looks like a million bucks. It looks like one that you'd find in an arboretum just by mixing those things that you can now find it at your local garden center. And, uh, you did allude a little bit, Paul, to tissue culture production. So maybe we'll close out this episode by talking about the difference between seed grown annuals and tissue culture grown. Uh, seed grown is, is relatively straightforward. There are a lot of annuals that are bred to be raised from seed and they tend to be less expensive. There are others that are grown from cuttings. So there's huge cutting farms in, uh, in Central America and, and elsewhere where most of your calabrocoa, your vegetative petunia and, and a lot of verbena are grown. There are a handful that come from tissue culture. Uh, and that is um, taking a little bit of a plant, uh, the, the right part, replicating it in a lab, and then growing out a, a whole plant from this little little teeny bit of tissue. And it's more common in woodies and perennials because uh, 
things that you can propagate from from seed or cuttings effectively, uh, you can ramp up the numbers relatively quickly. But you put something into tissue culture that's difficult in those other methods, and you can really you can go from zero to a hundred in uh, in a much shorter period. Yeah, thank you, Paul, for making that really crystal clear and easy because that can get really in the weeds <laughs> talking about tissue culture and production and stuff. So. That also tells you a little bit of behind the scenes on the market for some of our things like orchids and other production plants that have come down in price is because of that access to tissue culture. That also accounts for some of the difficulty in availability this spring. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just that there was a feeding frenzy. There was um, a lot of people, are, a lot of uh, growers are bringing in their stage three tissue culture or their unrooted cuttings in February uh, to get them uh, grown out for the for the spring season. And there was a really brutal freeze in uh Texas and and kind of middle America on Mm. Valentine's Day this year. And there are a lot of people whose unrooted cutting shipments from Central America and and anywhere outside the country had to go through some of those uh, some of those points like FedEx is their main hub is in Memphis. And by the time they got their cuttings, uh, right, they were just frozen boxes and demand was so high this year that there weren't replacements to put behind those. And so if you were frustrated with availability early, um, I don't think it'll be that way again next year because it's, it's not just um, everybody throwing elbows like it's a Tickle Me Elmo doll in, uh, in the day before Christmas. It was also, there were some, um, there were some shipment issues. Mm-hmm. There were some, what do you call it when you're getting something from what? logistics? There were logistics issues. Yeah. So that's a great insider information to have, Paul. So don't just blame, you know, the rabid garden trend. <laughs> Don't just blame uh, everybody else from grabbing up all the plants. There's definitely, you know, shipment, production, and think about that it has to start six months, eight months, a year earlier, and of course, several years earlier uh, when you're trialing and looking at plants. That's true. It's longer than people think. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you might be starting your seed, direct sowing it out in the garden for your zinnias, uh, at the end of April or early May, but that zinnia that's grown for sale, you know, that had to be done, uh, well, at least six months ago, correct? Yeah, they, uh, some of them, um, some of them much earlier when you're, if it's like the new, um, and Patience Downy Mildew was such a challenge in our area. And so people switched away from Wallariana to things like uh, the Sun Patience uh, because they can take, uh, it's a New Guinea, which doesn't get the same disease and can do sun or shade. But uh, Impatience Wallariana, the the old time uh, kind of Impatience were so popular. They were one of the, the primary bedding plants. So Ball and Syngenta uh, spent years breeding mildew resistant Impatience Wallariana. So there were uh, many years of breeding that went into that. And then even if they get something that could be released to market because it, it meets their demands, their, their strict uh, uh, quality standards, they still want to release a range of colors. They still want to release a range of colors and they still want to, um, they need to have the, you know, ball ships to everybody in the world. So they got to have huge numbers. So I bet it was five, seven, 10 years from the start of that program after IDM was a big issue until we finally found Beacon and Amara impatience in your local retailer. 
And that's a great place to end, Paul, because I am ecstatic to have shade impatience back in my garden this year. <laughs> I've been, I had been missing them for so many years, and those ball selections are doing so well for me, and I'm so happy that they put all that work into that breeding. Me too. Thanks. This has been fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for the insider look, and I think we'll all be looking at our annuals with new eyes this year. Happy planting. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A stilby plant profile. A stilby, also known as false spirea, is a perennial for that wet shade spot in your garden. Feathery blooms atop fern-like foliage give this plant a graceful appearance. It can take some sun, but will burn out in afternoon summer sun. It is deer resistant and tolerates clay soils well. Use it mid-border in a mixed garden bed or in a container as the central feature. It spreads slowly and is fairly easy to divide. It's generally hardy down to zone four. A stilby is often seen in white hues, but also check out the different colors available in the Astilby Chinensis Visions collection, from dark reds to pink purples. I interplant mine with early spring bulbs such as Thalia daffodils so that the emerging astilbe foliage in mid-spring covers the bulbs as they die back. Also, I leave the flower heads to dry on the plant as they remain attractive for many months. And if you don't like their brown color as they dry, you can always zap them with a shot of spray paint or floral paint and nobody will be the wiser. You can then cut back these blooms in winter when they start to look ratty. A stilby, you can grow that. This week in the garden, the seedlings of the cucumber, zucchini, and green beans are up and almost ready to be thinned. I've pulled the last of the peas and lettuces from the cool season beds and I'm transitioning those to cutting garden flowers like zinnias. And over at my home garden, the pots of annuals are filling out nicely. I've got some really nice tropical colors going with the lantana and New Guinea impatiens. And I have to do a special shout out to the zonal geraniums, the colors that breeders are coming out with now are just spectacular. Really deep violets, really beautiful deep peaches and orangey hues, and they are just putting on their show and blooming their heads off right now. I was lucky enough to be able to visit Ledoux Topiary Gardens earlier this week, and I highly recommend that if you are in the DC, Maryland, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Delaware area that is north of Baltimore in Moncton, Maryland, and the gardens there are looking incredible. 
the theme color gardens especially. I would say the yellow garden is a highlight and also there's an installation of bronze sculptures that are really interesting and fun throughout the garden and I think that will last for a few months throughout the summer so get over there while the sculpture exhibit is still in place. Uh, for ideas for other gardens to visit in the area I highly recommend the Kenilworth Aquatic Gardens in Washington DC sitting on the Anacostia River. The water lilies and lotus are coming into their seasonal bloom now and looking quite spectacular and if you can get north of the city, uh, you can also visit Lily Ponds. That's P-O-N-S, no D, Lily Ponds. And that is a water garden company, but they also have beautiful demonstration gardens and grounds that you can walk around and see their collections of plants and water gardening as well. Happy gardening. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You can find Washington Gardener online at washingtongardener.com on twitter at wdc gardener on instagram at wdc gardener and on facebook.com at washington gardener magazine <laughs>